Welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. Today, my guest is uh, Sam Zogibek. Sam is a lead researcher for the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment, focusing on land-based investment, the just transition, indigenous peoples, transparency, and human rights. At the center, he supervises an aspiring team of researchers working to uphold human rights and improve sustainable development outcomes in the context of land-based investments, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia. Sam, welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. Thanks, Sheila. Great to be here. Fantastic. So I, I wanted to just to ask uh, and focus on community agreements and related issues. Under what conditions do you envision the need for agreements between communities and extractors of projects uh, to be entered into? Yeah, so a lot of my work is around large-scale mining. And so when we're talking about agreement-making with communities, I'm always thinking about a large-scale gold mine or something similar um, coming to an area and finding that there are local people here, there, and then determining how they want to interact with those people. And I always try to point out that there are um, often it's Indigenous peoples who will be um, have lived on the land since time immemorial and will be approached by a mining company. Um, in other cases, there'll be other types of local communities who will also be approached. And um, usually the the kind of practices that we recommend are, are similar for Indigenous peoples and for local communities, but it's always important to realise that there are each, each community or each people is very different. So every circumstance is different. So in terms of... Um, mining agreements when when we talk about agreement making with communities or peoples we're talking about things like community development agreements or land use agreements they have a lot of different names but they all amount to um, coming to the negotiation table with a community and negotiating a, an agreement or a contract that um, will govern the relationship between the company and the community and hopefully set out how they will inter interact, um, what benefits might flow and what, what protections for the community might be respected by the company in any particular case. Hmm. When you ask about what conditions, um, uh, where would I envision there being a need, um, I can tell you that some countries require agreements and others don't. But even where there are no requ legal requirements for agreement making, um, some companies realise that having an agreement with locals will help to build a relationship and, and help mitigate operational risks that can come from conflict with a community where um, expectations aren't managed and, and we don't have a, the company doesn't have a good sense of, of the local people and their priorities. So agreements can create a process through which each side can learn more about the other, build consensus, manage expectations and, and hopefully avoid conflict. Um, and that's obviously critical for mining companies because we know that conflict has been shown to cost mine, operative mines millions of dollars you know, per day of operation. So I would say that agreement making can be a positive step for companies. Um, it acknowledges that the local people may suffer some negative, some suffer negative impacts. Uh, it can provide a vehicle for them to offer feedback and inform the company of ecologically and culturally sensitive areas. 
Uh, an agreement can also be a vehicle for communities to create legally enforceable rights. And that can be really important in the global uh, south where those legally enforceable rights might be harder to come by in practice. Um, one big challenge around agreement making is that mining projects can often affect multiple communities. You can think of kind of the communities who are on the land that the mining concession will cover, but there are also downstream communities, neighbouring communities. Uh, it can be really hard to ensure that all affected people are actually part of an agreement with a company. And maybe just the final point to note on this question is that from the community perspective, the issue usually isn't only about can we get an agreement. It's about something more fundamental that's kind of encompassed by the, the principle of free prior and informed consent. That is an international legal standard. I'm sure you and I will talk about it a bit more later on in this conversation, but it's about the right of Indigenous peoples and sometimes other communities to decide for themselves how their lands and resources are used and managed. And so agreements can be a good vehicle for EPIC, but often they aren't for various reasons. So one big question is how can the company work to kind of faithfully uh, obtain the community or people's free prior and informed consent? That's going to be a key question even before they start thinking about agreement making. Hmm. So uh, you've said uh, a mouthful, Sam. So just so uh, I follow you. So basically what you're saying is these agreements vary in nature, but they also vary in terms of the purpose for which they are being structured, but that whatever the reason, they can mitigate the risk of conflict, but they can also build trust. And also they can be a platform for benefit sharing. It, it seems to me that, you know, it's it's not uh, a, a one size fits all, which brings me then to a follow-up question. What then becomes the guiding principle for what, areas and what issues agreements with communities must focus on. When we are faced, to your point, with different interests within the community and when we are faced with different needs, what are some of the guiding principles for striking the right balance? Well, the first point, I think, is that an agreement in any context, really, is it's up for the parties to decide what they want to negotiate and include in that agreement. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, we always want the agreement process to be shaped by both sides. We don't want the company to just come with a template and say, here's a draft agreement, please sign it and we'll give you some money. Rather, the company should be learning about the community and what the community wants. And the second part of your question is really driving at the fact that there can be differences of opinion within a community. Um, any group of people is made up of individuals and there'll be different perspectives within that group. And the best practices really to being able to negotiate a strong and faithful agreement with a community lie around giving that community the resources and the time and the support that it needs to get organised internally, um, make sure it's hearing from women, from youth, from people with disabilities, and it's not just the chiefs at the top who are kind of dominating the internal decision-making, um, and then being able to uh, eventually be prepared to, with all the information, potentially with technical support from lawyers, to be able to negotiate clearly 
and kind of pursue the interests that the collective have decided are the most important. Hmm. So speaking of the collective, uh, Sam, you know, in most countries, as, as you and I know, minerals, oil and gas resources are vested in the state, which is to say the state is the custodian and, and performs, uh, a, if you wish, a paternal, a custodial role for everybody. And if we ac accept that that is what pertains, why do we need agreements between communities and developers in the presence of a central government? Yes, like you mentioned, in almost all countries, governments have the those legal rights to subsurface minerals. And that is why governments are the ones doing permitting for mines and entering into investor state contracts with mining companies and so on. Um, governments also have legal duties to protect the rights of all people in their jurisdiction. And that means that they can't simply ignore local people, many of whom will have lived on the, the lands in question for, for generations. There can also be a lack of knowledge by government about which lands comprise customary lands. Uh, for instance, such, such customary lands might not yet have been mapped and it can be very hard for an official base in the capital city to have a kind of very clear sense of the local context in the often remote areas where mines are taking place. But those kind of customary land rights are still legitimate and often um, mentioned in constitutions as needing to be respected. So agreement making can help acknowledge the those legitimate tenure rights or customary tenure rights that people may have over the land that's going to be affected by a mine. And they can provide for measures and processes to kind of minimise negative impacts on those people um, where the government may not be in the best position to be able to kind of balance its own interest in um, pursuing uh, various economic objectives and also kind of understanding the, the rights and also the sensitivities at the local context. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I think governments, um, agreements can also be important where governments are focused kind of less on those legal realities and more on kind of increasing things like GDP, um, despite the kind of local impacts that can be had. So an agreement enables the community to be at the table and to communicate directly with the company on its own behalf. Hmm. So you, you spoke earlier about different types of agreements, including, for instance, uh, land use agreements. I wonder whether we can be more specific about the potential discrepancy between what a central government might deem as necessary versus what the community might, especially on matters of land. What, why are some of the agreements in the licensing uh, stage not sufficient to meet, for instance, uh, land use rights and land use requirements by communities? Well, in the global south, you know, I, I kind of, my as you mentioned, my work focuses on sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And in many countries in those regions, uh, governments are still catching up with the reality in terms of mapping lands, in terms of understanding the local context. So... I, I think that's a really important kind of 
piece of context to keep in mind when we're thinking about the need for agreements. And companies themselves are um, showing through their own practice, you know, entering voluntarily into agreements that there is a real need to kind of plug a gap at the local level. Um, it's still, that doesn't mean that governments should not be very carefully doing land use planning, and that should enable them to learn more about how the lands are used locally, who has legitimate claims to those lands, and how mining can coexist with the people in those places. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something where multiple processes, rather than conflicting, they really just hope they, they, are, they are there to complement and fill gaps and to make sure um, the perspectives of people whose opinions or whose uh, interests often aren't at the forefront of national governments are still kind of part of the decision-making in practice. Uh, no, that, that certainly makes sense because what you're saying is we cannot assume that either the legal or institutional infrastructure exists to address certain needs. And that by disaggregating and, and enabling the space in which communities exist and their needs exist, we are better able to, to bridge that uh, uh, potential gap. I, I wonder yes. whether... Sorry, uh, sorry Sheila, if, if I can just, like, just to jump on what you say, I think no one knows the needs and priorities of a remote community or Indigenous people better than that group of people itself. And so agreements can just enable them to be part of the decision-making and it's going to result in arrangements that are more likely to minimise human rights violations and the risk of conflict um, and so kind of stabilise the local setting, which was which is obviously going to benefit everyone. Sure. So just so we understand each other, there is an implied ranking of uh, interest, concerns and needs. I wonder if we can address that here. Are we suggesting that in the big scheme of things, when we look at the uh, processes by which mining companies and others undertake developments, that when we look at agreements, we must rank them such that the interests of communities rank superior to say national or others? Is there a ranking here uh, or am I misunderstanding? Uh, Uh, it's a complicated question, and I want to make two two different points here. The first relates to the, the legal obligations that governments face at international law, and in particular um, regarding the rights of Indigenous peoples. We've already kind of mentioned that in some cases it will be Indigenous peoples who will be at, um, affected um, when a new mine wishes to be constructed and become operative. And Indigenous peoples have rights to self-determination, to cultural protection and more. And these are rights that don't allow the Indigenous people to secede and make their own country, but rather they allow the, the Indigenous peoples to have control over how they and their resources are governed internally. And, and these are rights that have been acknowledged by basically every country in the world um, in the United Nations declarations on the rights of Indigenous peoples, among other legal instruments. So those rights, all, all those different rights all lead to um, this requirement that I've already mentioned to obtain Indigenous peoples free prior and informed consent. And 
the the C in FPIC in free prior informed consent um, does include the right to say no. So international law is telling us that governments and companies need to work really hard to understand and engage with Indigenous peoples in good faith. It's not saying mining can't take place, but it's saying they have to work with Indigenous peoples in order to obtain their consent. The second point I want to make is a little bit different, and it's that all players that you've mentioned here, kind of local communities or Indigenous peoples on the one hand, and then kind of um, national interest or national stakeholders who you know may be more likely to be based at capital cities, um, they're not all on an even playing field in this scenario in, in, in any country in the world. And the types of communities who tend to be at risk of resettlement or the uprooting of their economic and social networks um, or ways of life because of a mine, these are people or communities who too often are poor and marginalised from mainstream political conversations. And they're also usually the least responsible for the challenges of society in in our century, you know, be, be it relating to climate change, economic challenges or what have you. And for marginalised groups like these, protections relating to consultation or free prior informed consent, they're not about ranking one group up above another. I, I really truly believe they're, they're in, in acknowledgement of the immense stakes that those marginalised groups face when a mining company uh, shows interest in their area. And they're protections that are there to encourage those more pl powerful players, whether it's the national government, whether it's a multinational mining company that can have a lot of influence, to find ways of working that won't sacrifice whole communities. Um, because we know that that type of sacrifice always leads to greater impoverish impoverishment, and that's going to have flow-on effects for broader society. So rather than ranking, I see it very much as trying to even the scales so that different types of stakeholders with very different perspectives and interests can work together and find much more harmonious and productive outcomes. Hmm. That's interesting. So the, the kind of levelling of the playing field rather than giving uh, you know, uh, an overriding priority over uh, different communities. So now... Mm, Inherently in, in what you say also is that because these parties come from different perspectives, their interests and their perception of how these agreements should be structured might conflict. Could you perhaps uh, share with us some of the issues over which the views or the interests of communities may be in conflict with uh, the views and expectations of other parties who nevertheless have a a vested interest in the project uh, arrangements. Yeah, well, I think at a at a kind of fundamental level, a community is thinking about how it's going to survive and how it's going to thrive. And a re a rural community or an indigenous people that's been based in a rural area um, has usually, for generations, used the land and local resources um, as a way of surviving. Um, a mining company, especially one from another country, is coming into that context with radically different timeframes, with radically different interests and even conceptions of what um, the local environment is and what it offers to that company. Uh, and so there, there's just an inevitability that there will be really, you know, really 
big differences in how each of those parties conceives of what is being proposed. And I can give you a tangible example, which relates to a, a gold mine that I studied in Ghana several years ago. We uh, travelled to the local area and interviewed dozens of people from uh, the community, uh, from the mining company, from local government and more. And one of the big conclusions that we took away from the local context was that, yes, there were uh, agreements in place and, yes, they looked quite innovative and interesting on paper, but they, they were established um, in a scenario where the company and the community had radically different framings for what was actually happening. The community uh, viewed the uh, kind of transaction that they made with the company as, to put it bluntly, land for jobs. We're going to let we're going to welcome you in. We're going to allow you to set up and mine the land that we've been on for generations. And in exchange, we need you to employ as many members of our community as you possibly can. The company, on the other hand. And it was a multinational company whose CEO actually visited the site to their credit. Um, the company had a different approach, which was very much we're going to focus on financial benefit sharing. So we're going to establish a development foundation. Uh, we'll allow some community stakeholders to participate in the governance of that, of the spending of the funds that flow through to it but it was very much a focus on kind of monetary benefits rather than on jobs, which seemed to be a really big priority for the community. And it hasn't been a disastrous outcome, but nor has it been the kind of, I, I think, the kind of perfect success that uh, those involved at the beginning were hoping for, in part because of those really fundamental differences. Hmm. So, uh, you know, the an agreement is an outcome of a process of um, you know discussion negotiation trade-offs and so forth and and uh, quite apart from companies potentially coming from a different point of departure when we approach these uh, negotiate these uh, agreements their the capacity varies and and so I wanted to get a sense from you of how do we ensure that communities have the capacity to negotiate even that? Uh, the first step to reaching the agreement is having an understanding and an exchanging of views. Yeah, I, I think I have three main components that I think need to be in place in order for the negotiation between two such different contractual parties to go smoothly and and fairly um, they are I think there are the three things that I think communities really need are time independent support and resources so what do I mean by time well companies are usually going to arrive they're going to be impatient to to begin negotiations because they've just managed to navigate the processes that the, the local government has imposed for them to get their permits. They're probably also facing pressures from their investors or the market more broadly, maybe even commodity buyers. But for communities, there'll usually be such a long learning curve ahead of them. Um, it also takes a long time for a 
diverse group of people to come together, as we've already discussed, and get organised. So I think time is especially important, given that we have that kind of aforementioned international law requirement that communities be involved from the early possible earliest possible stages of decision making around a pr- proposed project and it's just simply going to take time for a community that has probably never negotiated with a mining company before to come up to speed to really understand what's at stake and then to figure out what what it wants and what its interests are and how it's going to approach a negotiation the mm. second thing i mentioned was technical support so i think Understanding the economics and the legalities and realities around a proposed mine isn't easy. Uh, You uh, have a a lifetime career of working on those things and and I've looked at them for about a decade and I still think that if I was in the situation personally that I would be, uh, I would need a lot of support to really get up to speed and to be able to fully grasp how the particular mine being proposed Uh, on land that I live on is going to affect me in all of the different ways. So I think having civil society organisations, paralegals and other experts who can accompany the community or the Indigenous people can go a long way to avoiding them getting the raw end of the bargain. And that that technical support needs to be completely independent from the company. And that brings me to that third thing that I mentioned, which was resources. Um, communities will usually need financial resources to prepare for the negotiations. And this isn't um, paying them in order to agree. This is them having the financial resources to pay for lawyers or other experts to kind of understand the modelling of the project. They might need funds to travel to the capital city to get information from government databases or from individuals, uh, or they might want to travel to other mine sites to learn about other communities' experiences, just to get a first-hand account of what they stand to experience themselves. Um, and while the company is the logical source for these funds, they have to be paid to the community in a way that doesn't give the company more leverage over the community. So we at the Columbia Centre on Sustainable Investment have done a lot of thinking about how you can make sure that funds that are paid to a community don't create more leverage. And we've built up the idea that has been um, mentioned here and there of basket funds for technical support. And that, that's a, an, a, an idea or a solution that would see many companies pay into the same fund, which would be independently administered. And that fund could then pay out funds to uh, individual communities so that they can then obtain the support or undertake the other preparations they need prior to and during the negotiations for an agreement with a company. Right. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, I'm reminded that uh, when you started, you started with time and then uh, technical support and then financial resources. And here, it seems to me that time is really the issue because time for people to come to terms with the issues and inform themselves to regroup, uh, you know, reach a consensus view, uh, but also time to learn whatever, and and absorb the technical support and build trust with those that are supporting them. But I think my biggest takeaway here, Sam, is this notion that you are negotiating with a company, but the company is also on some level resourcing you. It's a delicate balance, and I can see why it's so important to think about how to execute it in a way that 
does not give rise to the appearance of uh, conflict in your interest. We, we have probably uh, three minutes and I'm gonna give you two questions for you to answer uh, as a parting shot. The first is really, so sure you got the three things and then you got the agreement and then you got to implement. Where comes the capacity? Are you comfortable that between those three things, you can also build capacity to administer the project. The final question is, now you've got a, a, a potentially empowered community around the mine, which is potentially more empowered and capable than another. How do you maintain social cohesion when in effect, already you could argue, one part of the society has been beefed up? Yeah, so for the first question, I do think the answer is similar to how do you make sure a community can negotiate. And all of those things that we mentioned in that previous question should be done in a way that they are actually contributing to the empowerment or what some people call co-powerment of the community. So the community should really be learning and um, developing confidence and developing understanding and developing more independence on more and more technical issues as it's going along. Um, and then I think the other elements like resources are going to be important for implementation as well. Uh, you know, the communities will need those resources to access and analyze data, to procure technical support. And that basket fund concept I mentioned could help with that. Um, and then I fundamentally, I think that if a community has actually been really meaningfully involved in the negotiations, uh, and as an empowered counterparty, they're going to be most able to monitor agreements that are actually achieved, um, even in, you know, even despite the kind of many barriers or challenges they're going to face during implementation. Your, your final question was about maintaining socioeconomic cohesion. Um, and, and I view the respect of kind of marginalised or at-risk groups as a, a tool to maintain social cohesion rather than creating a risk of division or, or ranking uh, like we were discussing earlier. Um, when, you, when you kind of bulldoze or sacrifice an entire community in exchange for mineral extraction, many of whose benefits are going to flow back to kind of corporate or overseas interests, um, you're disrupting the social fabric and pushing desperate people into new often already overpopulated and underserviced areas. And that's not going to be a recipe for social cohesion nationally. Um, another way of saying this is that there isn't really a tension between communities having rights and investment taking place. Rather, what we see is that when rights are trampled on in the context of investment, um, negative outcomes are more likely to arise for all stakeholders. So I would say to, to conclude that if mining is being pursued to advance sustainable development, then bring rights holders to the table, be upfront, enable them to be in, empowered in the negotiations, and let's find an arrangement that can work for all. That's going to lead to more national harmony, prosperity, less conflict, and less, less risk to the social cohesion of any particular country. Fantastic. Well... Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast, Sam. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with you.